it is important to understand the intricate relationship between finance and your psycho-emotional goals and your values. Because if you just look at pure finance, when is enough enough? It is never enough. I mean, if you a personality is such that it's never enough, then you know people can always buy bigger yeah. and more expensive toys. Yeah. Sometimes we, to you know, when we advise our clients on strategies, important to know what you want to do, but it's equally important to know what you do not want to do. You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi everyone and welcome back to the BFF podcast. Our topic today is about the third act. How relevant is it in Singapore? And today we have Ming in the house. Welcome Ming, it's a pleasure to have you on. Hello, hi, hello everyone. For the audience who may not know you, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, I'm semi-retired, currently an executive coach and also a part-time wine merchant buying and selling and drinking lots of wine. In my former life, I spent half of it as a management consultant and half of it leading a product business in a tech company. And I actually wanted to bring you on the show because we were having this chat last week and I mean, we were at a networking dinner, right? And then you (laughs) said that you were semi-retired and I was like, yeah, you know, you're fairly young. So when you speak to it about people, how do you define semi-retirement? I think the dominant narrative that we are quite used to is that retirement is a single event triggered either by a particular age or a particular event where your dominant source of income and employment stops, whether it's planned or unplanned, that's the trigger. So people are very used to thinking about retirement as a watershed moment. And I find that quite difficult to come to terms with because to me, retirement has lots of different elements, both financial as well as psycho-emotional. And then looking at the things that you've built over time and your ability to support those goals. There are all kinds of things that are to do with transitioning both from a life stage perspective as well as a personal mindset perspective and also the changing expectations that the world around you have. Give us your take. Now that you're semi-retired, like, tell us your take on the concept of this third act. If you think about the dominant narrative about retirement being an event, Mm. it causes quite a bit of tension when you cross over because it's very easy for people to be defined by their station in life. You know, folks introduce themselves and in the next 15 seconds you say, I'm so-and-so, I work in such and such an industry and I've spent how many years doing that and it's a 10 second explanation you are comfortable in your own skin the person listening is comfortable with framing you in that way Mm. suddenly that changes so at a very simple level 
every day when you meet someone and you introduce yourself, you're at a loss for how you define yourself. So it's quite a palpable kind of a feeling on a day-to-day basis. On a second note, I think one complication is that sometimes we created that situation. So as you, ourselves. Yes. So if you talk about the first act and then the second act and then the third act as if it was a linear progression of stages, right? So as you move from one to the other, you are defining the next in a cumulative manner. So your first act and then your second act and your third act is a cumulation of whatever you've done before. And so you are allowing what has happened to you to define what you want to do mm, next. Okay. So what if mm. the destination is not what you are completely aligned to in terms of your values, your personalities, your sources of motivation and your goals that had up until that stage be very undefined. So you get into some kind of a midlife crisis moment and some folks are even at risk of falling into depression because of retirement. Yes, that is true. I mean, but then, you know, with regards to the first and second act, right? I do think that is important when it comes to preparing for one's third act because if anything, the first and second act provides data points, right? You can, you know, analyze, you know, are there certain patterns with regards to how you perceive the world, what you like to do, what you certainly not like to do. And all these provides like, references or data points as to how you want to live out that sort of that third act. I think that's a great point, which actually is a nice segue into what I wanted to say about the first and second act. Mm. The idea that I have is that why shouldn't the first and second act be determined by some hypothesis on what your third act is supposed to be, rather than embark on the first act and then refine it along the way. Not for everyone. Some people think deductively, some people think inductively, but everyone who goes through a act wants to do so without regret. In order to do so, you would need to have taken on your first or second or whatever act with passion and perseverance so that you move out of that life stage without regret. And so your first act and your second act requires you to put a stake in the ground on what your third act is so that you have a clear sense of what is the goal in which you want to pursue with passion and to persevere so that your first and second act is done so without regret. And in that sense, you end up having a first and second act with a clearer narrative to yourself on the whys and the wherefores and the what and the whatnots and the successes and the failures. And that transition between the second and the third act becomes less of a watershed moment, but more transitional in a sense that your external activities, things that you spend your time on, the ways that you make money, how you invest may necessarily change. But fundamentally, you haven't changed in who you are and what you're trying to achieve. Were to talk to you know somebody who is in their 20s now and you ask them to define what your third act is, I get a sense that most of them would say, you know, I don't know, I'm just figuring out the world. So how do they move towards, you know, knowing how to define their third act and then acting upon their first and second acts accordingly? I would say that it is natural not to have a clear idea at that stage. But it doesn't mean that it would not be helpful to them to try to have one. You know, in, in a lot of casual conversations, we, you know, folks that are at my age, we know a lot of uh, people in the medical space. I say that lots of uh, medical doctors, we find them lucky. Financially, they're in a good spot. And also, I find them not tend not to lose their drive about work 
because day in, day out, they focus on saving lives. They don't run into meaning of life issues. Uh, so they have a sense of calling. Now, they may run into other types of issues where if their family doesn't understand the commitment that they need to give to their vocation and other aspects that might fall apart and they have to go deal with in their own personal lives and so on. But fundamentally, my observation is that they don't tend to have meaning of life issues. Rest of the world does. Now, the value of having some idea of what the third act is, even in your 20s, is not that the world expects you to have it, but that if you have it, you are creating an environment to be much more empowered and then much more able to channel your energies towards a longer-term goal, which would set you apart with those that don't because the energies can dissipate and lead to a sense of loss. And then that time becomes, I don't want to use the word wasted, but less efficient. Can we use you as an example? Because you spent, uh, let's say, a good part of your life in management consulting, right? You know, at which point do you start thinking about it or, you know, this, the meaning of life or like what value you add to the world? It is interesting that you ask that because personally speaking, every time, you know, a, a teacher kind of asks me, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up and all that? This was in secondary school. Or primary school, whatever. Primary I mean, school. you that mm. when when folks get asked this when they're young, their answer is like fireman or policeman or soldier or something. Mm. Then as you get older, now it's different. You get now, now you ask the now you ask the children, they want to be YouTube stars. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Or it's game, different. professional gamers. Or or pro or esports gamers. Yeah, absolutely. I was one of those that uh, always scoffed at the question. Mm. I said, Why the hell are you asking me at a young age? I have no clue and I, I think it's an irrelevant question. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the day I graduated from university and sitting out at the school gates looking at them open out to the real world metaphorically. I was nowhere closer to answering that <laughs> question even when you know uh, teachers were asking me when I was young. What do you study? I study a hodgepodge of stuff so I haven't walked the kind of a beaten path. I was sponsored by the government to go to America to come back with an economics degree and an international relations degree, which was, you know, ostensibly helpful for a career in the diplomatic service, which I embarked on but truncated after two years. And then subsequently, I pursued courses which I was interested in and got to know a few professors who were leaders in their field and did independent work with them. And subsequently, the history department called me and said, can we give you a degree? And I'll say, yeah, sure. So serendipitously, I got an extra degree out of nowhere. Uh, So in total, how many degrees do you have, right? Three majors. Three majors, Three majors, yeah, in in four years. (laughs) It was quite uh, unplanned. So I decided, you know, I I had to choose because all of the graduation dates where they give out the cert is at the same time. So I had to pick which faculty to receive the cert. Anyway, that's a bit of a, of a digression. In my personal experience, it's actually quite difficult to choose, but that making difficult choices in itself is a very important part of your education. And that in itself allows you to be clear about what you're trying to achieve. And so at that moment, which was quite pivotal, I landed at a certain conclusion, which every five odd years or so, I'll go back to my alma mater and reset my compass and say, you know, have I achieved what I set out to do or have I changed course? And if I've changed course, do I have good reasons to do so? And if I do, yeah, so be it. And at that point in time, I had very vague conclusions. I said, one, I don't think that based on my personality and my values that I'm suitable for work that 
requires me to count my income on a monthly basis, chasing quarterly incentives or jumping for thirty percent pay rise and looking at very specific financial calculations on salaries. However, because of my disdain for that calculation, I needed to work on stuff that necessarily would allow me to feel secure financially. Mm. Yes. And my then very vague assumption was that if you solve important problems, they pay for themselves. Mm. And therefore, the search was around how do I spend my time or get into a space where I'm solving problems so that I will forget about myself. Solving problems so that you can forget about yourself. Yes. Simply put, the problem's value at stake or impact to whatever mm-hmm. needs to be greater than my own personal material calculations. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So government wasn't a bad place to start. You could argue how close you are to impact and debate over whether that's enough for you. So when you start off, you're junior, you may be quite far off from making an impact. You may not be happy about that. And if that's not good enough for you, move on. If that's good enough for you, stay, you know. And those are personal decisions to make. Consulting was was great. I mean, every few months, you are dedicated to a problem that someone else has tried or felt challenged by and has a value at stake that ideally is worth a lot more than the fees that you get paid. And so you get to feel the assurance that remuneration is not an issue. And you can dedicate your energies towards solving problems that ultimately would, whether it's uh, make a company grow at a more healthy way, which would then have lots of implications over the careers of its employees, bring the industry towards a new playing field in terms of productivity, which has then implications on society as, as a whole, and lots of problems that you get to work on. Subsequently, I think the big question mark for me was, am I making direct impact on people? And when I decided that I wanted to go run a team, run a business, it was so that I could have a much clearer sense of how do I actually benefit someone else in a much more immediate manner. Then as I go into coaching, that hasn't really changed fundamentally, actually, because my current life is more about people than ever before. I get to work specifically one-on-one with people to try to unlock their energy. That whole development has been around thinking about what I fundamentally need to have in terms of specific qualities, not in a specific job or vocation or income, and trying to live through that and working really hard to assess at every milestone whether or not, or not I was true to my True to yourself in Myself, general. yeah. Mm. And if I did deviate, mm. then would the reasons be good enough for me to feel at peace with myself? But all the time ensuring that financial security, right? Absolutely. Mm. Because if you didn't have that, you would not be able to have options. And psychologically, the finance element cannot be understated. Yes, it, it certainly can't. However, it is important to understand the intricate relationship between finance and your psycho-emotional goals and your values. Because if you just look at pure finance, when is enough enough? It is never enough. I mean, if you a personality is such that it's never enough, then you know people can always buy bigger yeah. and more expensive toys. Yeah. Sometimes very we, easy to spend you know, when money. we advise our clients on strategies, important to know what you want to do, but it's equally important to know what you do not want to do. And oftentimes, when you're looking at financial goals, I'm sure many people will argue out there that it's a problem for the privilege to have choice and that a lot of people are chasing their financial goals. Those goals are relative to your own expectations. But as you chase them, 
what do you say is something that you do not want to do? What is that amount of money that you do not want to have anymore? You don't need it. You can say, you know, it is never enough. But when does that create this tangible gap between your psycho-emotional goals and your financial goals? It's great to have exceeded expectations financially. Don't get me wrong. If you have a long-term financial goal, right? and you're willing to accept a certain vol volatility, you know that there is a standard deviation of a 95% confidence interval that you can swing either up or down to your average uh, expected outcome. Mm -hmm. So you can have a pleasant surprise or you can have an unpleasant surprise which you then need to prepare for. And that psycho-emotional goal goes along with it. And how do you manage through that so that you're at peace with financial outcomes and the decisions you're making outside of that? One thing that stuck out, you know, when we last spoke is that you mentioned that, you know, when it comes to income acceleration or income maximization, it's not just about the skills, but rather leadership. I was like, oh, you know, this is a controversial enough statement when in a time where, you know, we're all taught to lifelong learning, skills future, skills building. So what's the one thing that we would tell somebody to, to someone in their, let's say, 20s? What's the one thing that you would tell them, you know, to... Think more about leadership to maximize income. This is really important, I think. I have a view on leadership and some of these qualities are something that we find ourselves starting to work on only when we are junior leaders. But in reality, awareness can begin far more upstream when they are younger. In my experience, I found leadership or great leaders to possess a few key behavioral attributes that are, are very important and they need time to be honed. One, Great leaders are almost always influential. Influential beyond their title, their station. And there are a whole host of techniques that are around enhancing one's ability to influence. There's a lot of academic research backing that up. Second, great leaders are also, you know, to use a, a word coined by Angela Duckworth, they have a lot of grit. It's a function of passion and perseverance and being able to have clear goal hierarchies to assess constantly where you are, but not losing sight of your end game. Then, great leaders almost always have resilience. What I mean by that is, they always seem to be able to have this very safe distance between something that triggers them and their ultimate action or reaction. And so you got great leaders have two selves. One acting self and one self that's constantly measuring and improving that acting self. So a sense of self-awareness. It's an awareness and also a playbook. They have in their routines ways in, in which they maintain that separation to make sure that the best version is out there performing and not lose energy from that action. Meaning that they have a playbook to sustain the energies required to do that. Because they almost always have to wear multiple different masks across back-to-back -back meetings every single day. That requires energy. There's a lot of things that go through under the bonnet on how they manage to do that. And so that resilience is almost a common characteristic across leaders and they have a very clear toolkit to get there. And then the fourth element, I think, is a little bit of altruism. I think Adam Grant has famously coined the phrase givers and takers and leaders that others follow 
tend to have a giving profile. Not to the point where you're completely altruistic and suffer burnout, but they have an ability to think beyond themselves and that's a critical component. Now, if you think about all of those four things, do you really think that something you start working on when you're 45? No, there's a lot of things that's applicable even in teens. You know, as a, as a parent, if I'm a parent listening to this, you know, I'll probably start thinking differently about how I teach my children. Absolutely. And I was having dinner with, you know, a friend who's also a former uh, PSE scholar and you know, he's now uh, working in a private business. And he was saying that as he moved out from school and, and the civil service, he found himself like having to rely on skills around collaboration, influencing others, mediating conflict and achieving common goals to take things forward. And he felt like he was in primary school. He felt like there was a huge imbalance in being prepared for those scenarios versus an academic or technical setting or a policy paper that he writes. And that may not necessarily need to be the case because if you think about us growing up, we actually socialize in the playground before we even learn arithmetic. Yes. But somehow, somehow along the way, the pace of technical learning, which is like, you know, cognitive problem solving, analytics. Whatever we're being tested for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which is important because mm. to me, that part is the, you know, when you talk about misfit fire, right? It's a, a mental dexterity. Yes. You're actually like learning martial arts, right? You need to train your legs and train your arms and all that. So that works the brain, but that's not the end game. And then there's this bit that the muscles just never been really worked while we spend so much hours in the classroom. Those muscles actually enable someone to be successful. So anecdotally, everybody knows that ironically, some of the folks that may not have done as well in school may have some better developed muscles along the behavioral front. Of course, yes. And sometimes we see the world rewarding that and that they move above their academic station, if I would say in, you know, in inverted commas. That's when you see behavioral attributes that lead to leadership positions driving someone's socioeconomic improvement above what we would typically see as where they will get to based on their academic achievements. Yeah, basically the pay grade, right? Based on your... Right, yeah. right. And you'll see them frequently in sales functions, GMs of multinationals where they come up through functions that involve managing large numbers of people. And you'll also see that when they move around company to company, others follow them. These are the ones where I follow my boss. Where they, they and clearly have shown leadership right, capabilities. Right. And they may not necessarily have the fanciest degrees, so to speak, right? It's precisely at that age, young, where you know it takes years to be at the top of your game in terms of the way you finesse your behavior that allows you to have this additional arsenal of weaponry to get you into leadership positions, complementing your intellectual abilities honed through our, you know, kind of highly rated Singapore academic system. And that's the part that helps you accelerate. And if you couple that with the stuff that you're doing to generate passive income, allows you to then self-actualize, reach your financial goals earlier and chart a path forward and to continue to find meaning. Even as technology takes away some of the mundane workloads that are plaguing your life today. So to sum up, right? Because today we we started off talking about how retirement is changing. But actually there were a lot of really, really good learning points as to how somebody in their twenties can think about how they lead their lives 
and start working on those bits today because you mentioned that you know when it comes to income maximization it's not just about skills building but it's about how you're thinking about things and if you have those leadership capabilities it will serve you you know in many different industries i mean we've seen leaders you know like you said like gms or like sales guys and they can very effectively move across industry if it because how they are able to command a team to perform well you know it actually you know it follows them throughout their career and you know it doesn't me it doesn't matter so much which industry they are in absolutely i think what's always helpful and this is not something that you should be doing once and then not do it again whether you're in your 20s 30s it's never too late as well it is important to reflect to have a north star to start with having something and then to refine it over time and to open your mind to what north star or how north star can actually be def- defined it can be defined in a very existential way. It may not be defined by, you know, a million dollars a year or defined by a particular title or station that you wish to occupy. Those things are helpful. But if you don't reach it, are you going to really beat yourself up really hard? Or if you exceed it, are you going to walk around in a way that is distasteful to others? I think existential definitions are important, which is this mode of being. So what do you want to be? What does that mean to you? Is it... uh? I would like someone to have faith in me. Oh, that's being. So what kind of person does that entail? I would like to be the person that others trust. I think that's a lot of good food for thought to end off today's episode with. I'm probably going to have to listen to this several times because there's a lot of very good, very good nuggets of information that I really need to chew upon. But thank you so much, Ming, for being here with us today. And for people who would like to know more about the work you do, where can they find you? Feel free to look me up on LinkedIn and connect. Okay, and then we'll include your LinkedIn on our show notes as well. Yes. Thank you so much, Ming. Thank you. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcasts at nelisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts, or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Skate Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.